Because if you are in Babylon, there's going to be pressures that will come as different paradigms and the right way of thinking and the wrong way of thinking come in conflict. There's going to be flashes of conflict in there. And so when Peter opens the letter, he writes to some churches in modern day Turkey and what was called Asia Minor and he calls them strangers or exiles or foreigners or aliens or temporary residents in where they're living. And they're scattered. They're scattered. And they're, they have a foot in both worlds. They have a foot in this world here and a foot in the eternal world. And as he describes them in verses two, uh, and verse two, he says, "You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You're chosen through the set apartness, the sanctification of the Spirit. You're chosen to obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ." And he says, "Grace to you and peace be multiplied." And we spent a week looking at that particular phrase: "Grace to you and peace be multiplied." That God's goodness to us and that the peace that is to reside in our hearts because we've been made right with God is not just to sit as a static thing, but it's to multiply, it's to spread, it's to ripple out of us. What God has done in us is to be shared with others because God has shared Himself with us and we are to share who He is with others. And then in verses 3 through 12, He he unloads in this doxology of who God is and, and, the, and the eternal lasting things that God has given us and, and uh, that enable us to face trials and temptations and difficulties, but set our eyes on eternal things and not be downcast because of the circumstances that we experience. And then in verse 13 through verse 25, he says, Okay, get your head together. Gird up your mind, okay? Get your, get your mind thinking this way. Don't live according to the former desires before you were saved, but live in this way, a way that is holy. Holy means set apart to God. The idea of holiness in the Scripture, and you can check me on this, check this out from Genesis to Revelation, is to love God with our whole hearts, our souls, our mind, our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. To serve in self-sacrifice to God and to others. That's what it is to be holy, to be untainted with the wrong desires of the world, to just live for myself, but to be set free at liberty to live for God. And Peter says, this is true of you because you've been born again by the eternal seed of the Word of God. Then in chapter 2, he says, here's how your community life needs to look like. And verse, verse 1, lay aside malice, wanting um, to harm others, which can happen a variety of ways, whether you punch somebody in the mouth or you punch them with your words or you do it behind their back, right? And all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, he says, lay that aside and live in light of who you are in Christ. Desire the sincere milk of the Word. And then he describes who the church of Jesus Christ is in verses 1 through 9. And as he describes it, and he shows that it is not a surprise to God. It's been his eternal plan all along as he quotes these Old Testament scriptures. And verse 9, he says this You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or unique people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because 
Once before you were not God's people, but now you are God's people. Once before you had not received God's mercy, but in Christ you have received God's mercy. And so show forth the excellencies of the glory of God. And then he walks that out, what that looks like. He talks about what that looks like in your relationship to authorities, and your relationship and work, and your relationship to your families. And chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and he connects it all with this tuning fork, this center mass here of a person, Jesus Christ. Live in line with Jesus who gave himself for you so that you should live unto righteousness. And then in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, Here's how you need to treat each other again in community life as a church of Jesus Christ. And here's how you need to respond to those in Babylon, the unbelievers, who may treat you wrongly. Respond correctly. Don't render the same treatment to them as they may be treating you as. So that when you live in this way with a life that is, <clears throat> that is rooted and settled in eternal things, they're going to look at you and they're going to say... In verse 15, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that whereas they may speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing, for evil-doing. Which brings us up to last week. One of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible, as many who have studied the Bible would agree to, verse 18 through 22 that we saw. And he puts before us again Jesus. And he says, this is how in your suffering, in the persecution, you're able to maneuver, you're able to uh, um, uh, act, you're able to put to action the things that I've been telling you. He said, fix your eyes on Jesus, on the victory of Christ. The victory of Christ. And as you go through suffering, and as you go through persecution, understand what Jesus accomplished in your salvation, and that He has declared victory over what is really behind that persecution. A very dark realm. Behind the guy wielding the sword, behind the guy determined to stamp out your faith, is a dark power. But understand that Jesus has gone and He has declared victory over the dark powers and walk in light of that truth. That was last week. And He closes verse 22. Who is gone into heaven? Jesus. And is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject to Him. And so now that brings us to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. All of us would probably be able to articulate at this point in our Christian walk, that suffering brings maturity. Trials bring maturity. We've already seen that earlier in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. But Peter wants us to understand in this chapter, this particular issue, that suffering and being persecuted by others brings us to a choice that we must make. And it is the choice of faith or it is the choice to give up and live according to the world. And to choose God's will is to choose to suffer affliction. 
It is, it is a, it is a choosing of taking up a cross and following Christ. And it is a choosing of no turning back. The cross before me we sing, right? The what? The world behind me. To choose God's will is to choose to suffer abuse because we're joined to the one who has suffered. And we, he says we should not be surprised when his followers suffer as well. Moses in Hebrews 11.25 probably sums up well what Peter is getting across here. Where uh, the writer of Hebrews, speaking of Moses, says he chose to be, to mistre- to be mistreated, to be uh, uh, persecuted along with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin, the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. And so it is with a believer. And that's what 1 Peter 4, 1-6 wants us to understand. There are only two ways to live. There's not three. There's not a middle way between Babylon and suffering for God. We would like the ability to have a comfortable life now and then a good experience on the judgment day. Right? The judgment seat. There's no such third path. And so this is an important passage in 1 Peter 4, 1-6 to get right because he tells us the thinking that we need to have as we prepare and enter into suffering or persecution. We don't know when that will happen. I'm sure that we're not experiencing the same level of persecution that many in other countries are, are experiencing. This will help you pray wiser and more biblically for those folks like Hebrews 13.3 tells us to do, but it will also help prepare you when you face ostracization, when you are, uh, 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 are, are limited in your, in your job advancements because you're not willing to compromise certain things. It helps you understand how to live as one who has been marked out. And so he says in chapter 4 and verse 1, For as much then, or in other words, therefore, therefore, because of Christ's victory over the dark powers. And chapter 3, verse 22, therefore. So from the conclusion of what verses 18 through 22 in the previous chapter said, Christ's victory over the hostile powers by virtue of His death and resurrection is ascension here. Therefore, since Christ's suffering was the pathway to His glory, He needed to go to the cross to go to the throne. The crown came after the cross. Since that is a path here, uh, uh, the pathway to glory, and He said this already in chapter 1, hasn't He? That the trial of your faith, though it is heaviness and now for a season, will produce what? Produce gold, right? There will be a day when Christ appears that the reward is there. So be encouraged. Find joy in that. But here is what he's saying uh, now is that we should also prepare ourselves to suffer, prepare ourselves to be persecuted, prepare ourselves to make those difficult choices between Christ and the world's desires because this is the prelude to reward. This is the prelude to reward. And so the main point of these verses here is that we are to arm ourselves with something that none of you right now in your natural hearts want to do. So this is something that the Holy Spirit needs to do to all of us this morning. That He needs to arm us with this kind of thinking. Because this will not come naturally. This is something God has to do as we abide in Jesus. We need to arm ourselves. Listen. 
with the intention to suffer. You say that sounds weird, like are you saying I need to persecute myself, make myself suffer, like I hear about some of those, you know, medieval times monks trying to flog themselves. No, I'm not saying that. But we need to understand that with the cost of following Christ, this is part of the deal. And he mentions no words here. And so he says one command in this section. One command. Do you see it in verse 1? It is to arm yourself. That word arms only used one time in the whole New Testament here. And it is the idea of... of uh, uh, um, It's a military term. And it is the idea of taking this weapon of thinking like Christ. Ever thought about the mind of Christ being your main weapon? It is. Arm yourselves. This This is less of an activity as much as it is to let the imagination of your heart be surrounded by the Word of God Specifically, the mind of Jesus in suffering. And the structure of this passage here um, will tell us that having Christ's attitude about suffering sets us on a different path of doing God's will, doesn't it? And this is a better path. This is the good path. This is the right path. This is the narrow way. The world doesn't realize it. This is the best way. The only way. And thirdly, he's going to remind us that this is true because of the judgment of God. The judgment of God. So that's this trajectory of this passage, verses 1-6. through And what he's telling us is this. A new relationship with Christ means that you have a new relationship with sin. Here's what he means by that. A new relationship with Christ, you you are united with Christ, means that your old relationship with sin now Your relationship with sin is different. Really, what he's saying in chapter 4, 1 through 6, he's summing up what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Sin has been canceled out. You now, because of Christ in you, if you receive Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection for you for the forgiveness of sins, you have received a breaking with the bondage of sin. You say, I still sin. But nobody has to. By the power that God's given us, we can say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Look what he says in verse 1 and 2. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise in the same way with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. So a new relationship with Christ means a new relationship with sin. These are exiles in, in a proverbial Babylon, right? And, our, our, and we, are, we, are, we are with them together, right? And so we're to represent the kingdom of God in Christ, and this is what it means to represent that. First of all, number one, very simply, think like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Notice, in verse 1, Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. He had to suffer because of sin. You can look at chapter 2 and verse 21. Here unto where you call, because Christ also suffered for us. 
You can look at chapter 3 and verse 18. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive in the Spirit. He had to suffer because of sin. Think like Jesus. Do you think about your sin and what Jesus did for it? And what Peter is saying here is this. No longer, if you're in Christ and have a new heart, no longer can you enjoy the thing that Jesus had to suffer and die for on the cross. If a vicious criminal stabbed your child to death, would you take that knife and put it in a glass case on the mantle? You would never want to see that knife again. right? So think like Jesus. He had to suffer because of sin. So don't let sin contaminate the way that you're living for Christ. He not only had to suffer because of sin, but He suffered, notice what it says, two little words that are very precious in the Bible for us. For you and for me. In Christ. So that means that I am now in Christ because He suffered what I deserved. He took the wrath of God upon Him. And God looks at me as being righteous in Christ. He became sin who knew no sin that I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21 And so if Christ is in us, so I am now to think, to arm myself with this mind of Christ in me. He who has suffered. It's a once and for all thing, right? Jesus has suffered. But... He's talking then in the rest of the verse, likewise with the same mind, for arm yourselves, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He who has suffered. Who's that? Now he's referring to believers. He's telling you need to prepare ourselves for persecution, for that line of the world behind me, the cross before me here. And he's not saying that if you suffer, you've attained sinless perfection. You're never going to sin at all after your suffering. What he is saying is this, is that those who willingly endure scorn, mockery, understand this package here of what it is to be in Christ, and we're willing to go through that, shows that we understand that Jesus has triumphed over sin. We are broken with sin. By that I mean we have been broken from sin. We, we set our minds on things above, not on the things on the earth. We, 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 we will not participate in sin and we will endure the criticisms that will come from Babylon from that life of faith. There's a passion. Because you suffer, this commitment to understanding this is what it is. There's a passion for a new way of life. A life that will not yet be perfect but it will be remarkably different in the values and the things we live for. And he's saying, really, in this second verse, verse 1 and 2 here, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Think about it this way. Why would Babylon persecute you for the faith that you have in Christ? Why would they? That's a good sign, isn't it? That's a good sign. That shows that you think differently. That shows that God's doing a work in you, right? And so arm yourself with that kind of thinking here. And then secondly, 
think like Jesus. Secondly, since a new relationship with Christ means a new relationship with sin, and these are exiles in Babylon who are to represent the kingdom of God in Christ, uh, uh, show the show the uh, to 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 show the gospel in deed and to declare the gospel in word. Suffering with Christ in our lives gives us victory over sin. Here, we're identified with Christ in the suffering and death, and therefore we can have victory over sin. And then we yield ourselves to God and have the same attitude that Jesus had. We can overcome the old life. We can manifest the new life. I want to remind you that if Jesus suffered because of sin, and He also suffered during that time, obviously without sin. And His gospel of His life, death, and resurrection ascension to us then gives us power to redeem the time left. All of us got saved at different ages. Some of you got saved very young. God spared you from, very many, th- from, from, from many things, didn't He? Some of you got saved later on in life. And what Peter is saying in verse 3 is this. The time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought or worked the will of the Gentiles. He's saying there was a time before you were saved when you walked according to the world. According to the way unbelievers live. Right? That's what he's saying here. We spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of unbelievers when we were unbelievers. We walked in what he describes as lewdness, lusts. There in verse 3, these words here mean lust, drunkenness, um, revelries, drunkenness, drinking parties, abominable idolatries in verse 3. That's what he's saying. That's what we walked in before we came to Christ. And then he says in verse 4, when you changed, your old crowd thought you were weird. They thought it was strange that you didn't run with them in these same old lusts. And they spoke evil of you because you were convicting to them. You made them feel guilty. But he says, remember, they are not going to escape judgment. They'll give an account in verse 5 to the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. And what he's saying is this, in the time that you have left, you don't know what 2020 will bring us. Probably according to statistics, at the end of this year, there will, there will be some people who are no longer with us. Right? That's just the, that's just how it is, right? And we don't know if those are going to be older people, middle people, younger people, etc. We don't know what this year will will have for us, but we do know this: that the time that God gives us, we are to be good stewards, and we are to redeem the time that we have left. What's he, what, he, what he wants us to understand is this: in time past, this is how you lived, right? Uh, uh, and therefore, because you have uh, followed Jesus Christ, you have received His gospel, and you're walking in His ways now, don't be surprised when they think that you're strange. You are strangers. Chapter 1, verse 1, right? You're exiles. You're aliens. This is, this is, you're, you're not comfortable here with that way of thinking anymore, of living according to whatever you wanted to do. Your wanters changed. You're not happy doing that stuff. Oh, you, you you might dabble in it, but you can't be happy with the Spirit of God in you. And here's what He wants us to see.
you might look at these things and say, you know what? Those sound pretty rotten, pretty far down on the end of the chain, right? I mean, this is some pretty grungy stuff, right? Some rotten stuff. And you might say, I never did any of these things before I was saved, or maybe some of you have experienced this, right? But I want you to know that the seeds for all these things sit in an unbelieving heart, don't they? It should never surprise us when we hear about sin. Should it? It's resident deep in there, right? But for the believer, it does not put us in bondage. Christ has broken. He canceled the powers of sin we sing with John, with Charles Wesley. And can it be, right? He broke the power of canceled sin. And what Peter wants us to see that is, is that when we abstain from these things, whatever it is, you fill in the blank what it used to be, right? Of a heart that was, that was not walking after Christ, um, is, is that your former associates are going to be surprised and shocked, and they're going to do, be more than surprised or shocked when you take a firm and consistent stand against this old way of life. You'll be condemned, and so they will attack, they will slander, they will heap abuse on you. That Greek word there, in verse um, uh, 4, speaking evil of you is a word that means even to blaspheme. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And right here, Peter is telling us again the two ways. You cannot please God and humans, can you? Especially non-Christians. How do you please God and non-Christians, right? Here. It's hard enough to please God and Christians sometimes, right? Um, if, the, if the world celebrates how you've chosen to live your life, there's probably a really, really high and good chance that God is not celebrating that, right? And vice versa. If God approves of the way you live, probably the world likely will not. And the contrast will grow stronger and stronger, right? As the culture becomes more and more post-Christian. And uh, as, as, as hard as it is in our nation to see people turn from the truth, one good benefit of that is this. It's showing who true believers are in a lot of ways, Right? Who's going to stand up? Who's going to still be real, right? Think about um, the, the paradox of this. The world does not think it's strange when people wreck their bodies, when they destroy their homes, when they're ravaged by STDs, when they sleep with whoever they want outside of marriage. When they ruin their lives by running from one sin to another, the world does not think that is strange. In fact, it's applauded. You just have to see what's promoted on television, right? Well, when a drunkard becomes sober, an immoral person comes, becomes pure, a man who left his family comes back and supports and leads his family, those people are looked at as they lost their mind, right? And what Peter wants us to understand is we must please God, not the world. It's from the world that we've been saved out of and we must live for God's glory. God's glory. So redeem the time that you have left. This is the years before Christ, in a sense, were wasted, right? You could not live for God's glory before you knew Christ. But in Christ, now let's live for His glory. And then he says this, finally, 
a new relationship with Christ, of course, meaning it means a new relationship with sin. So therefore, arm yourself with this thinking here. Align with God's final word. Align with God's final word. What is the final word here? Notice this theme that comes up in verse 5. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick or the living and the dead. For for this cause, for this purpose, was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God and the Spirit. Here's what he's saying. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, and every second this day gets nearer, right? There is a day, there is a time that will come when world history will stop. And God will intervene to judge the world. And all will face God. Those who have died will be raised up to answer for themselves before God in that final day of judgment. There will be a final judgment. And on that day, as you are facing pressures from the world on how to live as a Christian, on that day, will it matter what the world thinks of Christians? What matters is this truth that Paul wants us to live in light of and be reminded of. The world and its court systems, and let's just use an example of North Korea, which is an extreme example, right? Christianity illegal, live to Christ is illegal. Um, those who are believers uh, very secretly uh, huddle sing songs in their homes in whispers so they're not reported. If you know your neighbor's a Christian and don't report, you're going to get the same kind of prison sentence, etc., death. And let's say that a believer in North Korea is accused of being a believer in Jesus Christ and an enemy of the state and the court system finds themselves guilty and they are put to death. In North Korea, which happens all the time. Happening actually more and more in China. Um, Pastor of a church that was uh, shut down uh, here recently just was um, uh, put in prison for for nine years. And um, he's not sitting behind bars. He's beaten daily, etc. Worn down. And Christians who may have been condemned by the world's courts, etc., the world system, while they were still in their body, their life ends, their physical death, the world looks at that and says, uh-huh, what can your God do for you, right? This is proof that you're condemned by us. But what does Peter say in verse 6? For this cause is the Gospel preached also to them that are dead. And he's referring to those that have been martyred for their faith already. That the early church would have seen. That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but what? Live according to God in the Spirit. They may have been condemned while they were still in the body. They may have died. The world condemns them. But in accordance with God's standard of judgment, they will enjoy life forevermore. It's the whole point of the Gospel, right? Their future life is theirs because the Gospel was preached to them and they responded to it and they are kept in the power of God for all eternity. And so he's saying... Thirdly, align yourself with God's final word. 
Think about the end and work your way back. Some of you might hear these kinds of things and be at different stages in your life. You might be discouraged at difficulties you might be facing, financial struggles um, that were not self-inflicted, um, sacrifices that uh, you've had to make for your family and God's kingdom. You wonder, is there some way to do this whole Christian life without the difficulties? You might have non-Christian friends who have things going really well for them. And maybe you're tempted to think this thought, what if I made a mistake? And there's a way to have a comfortable life without struggles and still accomplish the things that God wants me to accomplish. And you know the answer to that. But that thought is there. And there may be a temptation to give up or temptation to entertain this particular lust and, say, and, 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 and not say no to sin and, and, to, and to go this path and to indulge in this, etc. here. And you might have attacks of Satan that, you, that are happening to you. But friends, this passage here tells us you need to arm yourself with the same mind Jesus had. But there's only two paths. There is a life that's lived for Christ and the power of Christ. And there's a life that's lived for the flesh, the broad way that leads to destruction, right? And what is the tuning fork for all of this? He just can't get away from it, can he? It's Jesus, right? If we're going to thrive in Babylon on our mission, we need to understand how Christ lived in this world in flesh and blood, right? If we're going to understand the cost of our mission, we're going to find that in the cross of Christ, won't we? If we're going to find our purpose, our task, the mandate for our mission of living in Babylon, it is founded on the authority of Jesus and the reality of His resurrection and ascension. All authority is given unto me. If we're going to find the motivation, the incentive for our mission, it's to exalt and bring glory to Christ. And as we looked in our discipleship series at the beginning of this year, may the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering. If we are going to find the power for our mission, it comes from Jesus Christ who has sent the Spirit to live inside of us and says that's better for us than if Jesus was physically standing right next to me. And if we're going to find the urgency for our mission to walk and thrive in Babylon, it is the return of Jesus Christ. When we learn to think with Christ at the center, we are arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. You begin to think and then act in the way that Christ has willed for us. You see this stamped all over Peter in his letter, in his life, to the end. He anchors everything he says, even persecution and suffering, in the life of Jesus because it is an indelible mark of the Christian, stamped being in Christ. So arm yourself with the same mind. For as much then as Christ suffered us for us in the flesh, 
Arm yourself likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For in the time past of our life, may, suffer, may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked the lasciviousness, lusts, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same exercise of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God and the Spirit. May you grant us the grace to do so. We can go to the... Um, the last screen there, Jared, here are um, our words that this uh, wonderful letter closes with, First Peter 5, 10, and 11, and say them together with me. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's a crown at the end. There's a crown at the end. Let's pray, and then I'd like Ethan to come up, and uh, his father, Brother Gary, and and Charlie, and uh, Brother Howard, if you would mind coming up as well. And We want to um, have a word of prayer for Ethan as we send him off. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Um, we are equipped in it as we take the things that it says and then we apply them and obey them. May we be a people who uh, have the right thinking that will cause us then to have the right living. May the words of the Gospel be on the tips of our tongues and our lips, and may the truth that we live be in line with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and His decisive victory over the power of sin and death. Thank You that we do serve a risen Savior. Thank You for the new years. May Your Holy Spirit help us to repent from the things that we need to put off. Perhaps the ways that we lived according to those other verses there that maybe we're tempted to be sucked back into in whatever degree. Perhaps it's just a simple uh, apathy and coldness to the things of you. Kindle anew in us your fire through the Scriptures, the Word of God. We know that's always where it begins. In a heart that seeks you with a whole heart, you will be found in them. Help us to walk with these truths in mind in 2020. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.